So tonight, only easy questions. <laughs> I mean, after all. <laughs> uh, Tara and Walt will be uh, having microphones to hand to you <coughs> uh, when you ask the question, so that, that way everyone can hear it and I won't need to repeat. Um, so it's... Anybody? Hi. So this is my first retreat, so it's a little context. But I was wondering if you could offer some advice as far as what may work and what wouldn't. If I plan to integrate these teachings into a more general, maybe science-forward, mindfulness practice post-retreat, and some more context, I think I first learned of you and got some of your energy from the 10% Happier app. And so is the question how to bring the practice back to your life outside? Yeah, I'm kind of concerned with uh, how all-encompassing this practice seems here and how it's long sits and so many levels. Mm-hmm. And it's, just, it's got such a rich history. And how not to water that down so that it's useless, but incorporate it into just like maybe shorter practices, mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. where I might consider like mm-hmm. where brain waves are going and flow states and habit science and that kind of stuff. Sorry, that was a lot. Okay. Forget the last <laughs> one. Uh, first to say that some of that will be addressed tomorrow night uh, because my four colleagues are going to be speaking each one about a particular parame. And the paramis are the perfections that the Buddha developed to become a Buddha. And so it's a whole list. Uh, and they're really qualities that can be brought and should be brought into our lives. So there'll be more of that tomorrow evening. So just a brief. Uh, there are a few things that are just really important in terms of carrying the practice forward. Uh, and one is a daily sitting practice. And the regularity is more important than the length. Uh, that being said, you want to sit longer than five minutes. You know, and so if you can sit an hour a day, that would be great. If you can sit two hours a day, that would be great. Maybe it's half an hour. You know, but really try to establish a routine and a rhythm where that just becomes part of your life. Uh, and it's really important because... It just sets the day up. Uh, there's more of a chance of carrying mindfulness then throughout all the busyness of the day. And it's a touchstone each day into the depths and the, the fullness of whatever you experienced here. So that, that's a really important piece. One of the things... Uh, what are you talking about right speech? Okay, so another huge arena uh, of practice, and it's huge, uh, would be really undertaking the practice of right speech because we speak a lot, you know, and it's a major use of our energy in the course of our lives, in the course of a day, and mostly, I'm sure you will recognize, 
mostly in our speech, the words just come tumbling out. And there's not that often much attention paid to the motivation behind what we're saying. So somebody came up with this acronym, WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? (laughs) (laughs) So before we speak, wait. (laughs) Even if it's just for a moment, you know, so instead of just it being on the forward momentum of that energy tumbling out, And the Buddha talked about four different kinds of wrong speech. I'll just back up a minute. There's one list of ten wholesome and ten unwholesome actions. And obviously, the wholesome are to be cultivated and the unwholesome to be avoided. Four of them, four of the ten, are about speech. So this is not insignificant. This is a core part of our practice which obviously can be undertaken more effectively out of retreat than in retreat, since you don't talk that much here. Uh, so the one kind of speech that some is obvious, you know, not lying, not harsh speech, not slander, gossip, things like that. Uh, but there's one category which I love to practice with. And the poly word is... What's the word? Anamanapia? For its English translation. So the English translation is useless talk. The Pali word is sampapalapa. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds just like what it is. (laughs) Sampapalapa. And I, it, I just find it so interesting. Just in our social, social interactions, you know, I can be hanging out with friends and just hanging out. And so often, you know, the conversation will be going on and I'll just see this impulse to say something totally useless. <laughs> Basically, it's just a way of saying, here I am. <laughs> That's the only point of that, those particular words. So... I really try to keep an eye out for the impulse to some pop up. <laughs> and in those moments when I'm successful, I say, no, I don't have to say this. You know, just First, it feels like a great victory over Mara. You know, over this, Mara is the embodiment of delusion in the Buddhist texts. Uh, you know, so Mara is trying to keep us ensnared in unwholesome activities. Oh, yeah, defeated Mara in this moment. <laughs> but even more than that, it is re- the felt sense of that restraint is a conservation of energy and can feel it. Instead of just our energy spilling out in a useless way, we're about to do it. No, I don't have to do it. There's, there's just a more there's more integrity in the being. So right speech and just paying attention to that, you know. And when you go home and if you want to do some reading about it, you might just explore in you know different books about Buddhism, 
uh, even books on the basic Eightfold Path, right speech is one of them. You might explore, you know, in greater depth just through some reading all the various aspects of it. Uh, so that would be a big area. Um, yeah, I think that's enough for now because, again, tomorrow night people are going to be speaking for other kinds of practices to do, you know, in our lives outside. Daily sitting, right speech. Uh, particularly if there are people who have not you know, spoken you know, asked questions before. If, uh. Thank you. Um, can I ask two questions or just keep it to one? But one at a time because the second one's going to push out the first. I'll start with the easy one. Yes. Um, what are, what can one expect if they go on a one-month or a three-month retreat like the ones offered here, or perhaps um, what should one consider before committing to such a long retreat? You can expect more of the same. <laughs> <laughs> Which should be encouraging, because if you made it this far in this retreat, you'll be fine. <laughs> Especially if you don't have expectations of anything else. <laughs> you know. That being said, you know, over time and over a longer time, there's just a chance you know, to strengthen the concentration, and that often people will see you know, a deepening of the concentration, a greater continuity of practice, all the things we've been talking about here, but there's just a longer time to cultivate them. And because of that, they get stronger. Uh, It's very valuable. If there's an interest and an opportunity, you know, in your lives, um, as you can imagine, I'm a big fan of intensive practice. just because it's so, it's so rare to have the opportunity to investigate this mind-body in this way. Uh, so it's just a, a really precious opportunity, and the long retreats, uh, they're great. Not always happy. <laughs> just like it's, it's really just like this, the same ups and downs. And you know, Some sittings will be really clear and calm and quiet, and others will be turbulent and restless and all of that. But over time, day after day after day, we really learn a balance behind all those changes. So instead of being, what's the word, whipsawed? You know, just thrown about by all the changes and the ups and downs, we really develop quite a stability in being with those changes. There's a book about the Buddha's life, it was, it was written by Joseph Campbell, who was this great uh, scholar of, of world myths. And, and he wrote this book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he used the Buddha's life as the archetype of the journey towards awakening. And in this book, there's a very beautiful 
kind of mythopoetic description of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment as he was sitting under the tree and assailed by all the forces of Mara, both the seductions, you know, sense delights, and also the fearsome aspects. Uh, And all of these energies came to assail the Bodhisattva. And there's one line that Joseph Campbell wrote in describing that scene. And this one line has really stuck with me in terms of being a beautiful expression of what our practice is actually about. So as, as the Bodhisattva, as he was known before his enlightenment, was assailed by all of these forces, uh, Joseph Campbell wrote, and the mind of the great being was not moved. I love that. The mind of the great being was not moved. You know, so c- can you imagine the, the beauty and the power and the steadiness and the openness of a heart-mind like that? That whatever life presents, shh, stillness, peace, openness. Um, so that's, that's really the direction we're going in. And, and we learn to be less and less moved, that, or reactive, one could say, to the events, whether it's in meditation or in our lives. Thank you. And uh, my other question was regarding the nature of thought. Um, Several times you've mentioned how thoughts are empty and how that's just like cutting at the root of it, is just recognizing that thought has no Mm -hmm. true nature. Um, Throughout this week, in dealing with thoughts, I've found some I can simply label planning, fantasy, and they're very easy to go away. And in those thoughts, I can see, oh, okay, empty, or like the content Mm. is of no meaning or significance. But then there's other thoughts where the content, usually with like an emotional charge, seem much more evidently meaningful or relevant to my life. And when those arise, I'll either sit with them and just try to feel into them, or I'll tell myself that's something to meditate on at a later time. Um, for some thoughts, the content seems evidently meaningful and something worth pondering, like perhaps past actions, how to write them, or something of that sort. Um, can you speak to a bit about the emptiness of thoughts mm-hmm. in that way? Yes, so... Um, this really points to one framework of understanding experience. and I can't remember whether we've spoken about this explicitly or not, but the framework of relative truth and more ultimate truth. And so on the relative level, the contents of thoughts are worth paying attention to in both ways, either because they're meaningful and they're worth pursuing in one way or another, or we see the content as meaningless and letting them go. But we're actually attending to the content. So that's that we could say is on the relative level. On the more ultimate level, it's on that level that we're seeing the momentariness and the insubstantiality and the ephemeral nature of them. And from that perspective, the content is irrelevant. We're just seeing the thought as a phenomenon come and go. So our practice 
is the union of the relative and the ultimate. It's not like they're two separate things. It's the same phenomena seen from different levels. And in our practice, uh, and I think it can be become quite intuitive, you know, when it's appropriate to pay attention to the relative level and when it's appropriate to really stay on the more ultimate level of just seeing the momentary change. So just as an example of the importance of the relative, in the years that I was practicing in India, it was in Bodh Gaya, which is a small village, but it's where the Buddha was enlightened, so it's you know, a significant uh, spiritual place. And in the village, uh, one of the big landowners had a working elephant, as you sometimes see in India. Uh, and so sometimes I'd be walking into the village, and the elephant would be walking the other way. I always stepped out of its path. I did not just say seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> Sometimes the application of the relative is absolutely appropriate. <laughs> it gets a little trickier in the examples you gave, you know, in terms of when we're sitting and different thoughts come and the content does seem meaningful in some way. So there's a variety of ways you can handle it. And you mentioned a few. You could either make a note, just mark it and say, okay, I'm going to really reflect on this later. So that would be one approach. If it feels very compelling in the moment, and sometimes it's so compelling we don't even really have a choice, you know, where we get involved in some reflection about it, And that would be okay. I would just be watchful that uh, it's very time-limited for while we're sitting, you know, because it would be easy to spend the hour just kind of in reverie about it. But if you spend, you know, five minutes or something like that, some brief amount of time just trying to highlight the main points of its significance which could then be taken up later, I think that would be fine. Um, very often, and it's certain kinds of thoughts, not only kind of the personal, you know, thoughts personal to our lives that, that may be coming up, but a very seductive thought pattern uh, are Dharma thoughts. I've spent hours sitting just reflecting on Dharma, Dharma thoughts. And I justified it to myself by saying, well, this is the Dharma. But it was really just thinking. <laughs> so, and sometimes those kind of thoughts happen when we have a certain insight. You know, in our meditation, we're going along and, and we see something really interesting or clearly or some aspect of the teaching becomes very obvious. And so the insight then becomes the, uh, the uh, an initiative for them thinking about it. I mentioned in a couple of my groups, uh, have, you ever, have you ever chewed sugar cane? 
Okay, so when you're in the tropics, so, you know, they'll often on the streets, they'll sell little stalks of sugar cane and you chew them and the first few chews are very juicy you know, in Sweden. But after three or four chews, it becomes dry pulp and then you spit it out and then you take another chew. So with these Dharma thoughts, you know, where we're really kind of reflecting on maybe an insight or an understanding we can generally extract the juice of the insight in the first few minutes. And then it becomes a lot of repetitive thinking about it. That's the dry pulp. And so we don't want to spend time in that. Um, I don't know if that covered. That works. (laughs) Thank you, Joseph. Are there any female identified beings that would like to ask questions? <laughs> Men have a tendency to. <laughs> okay. Thank you. In your personal practice, Do you have an intention for every time you sit? That's it. Is that it? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty simple. You asked for simple. Yeah, yeah, good, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes. (laughs) Uh, And it, it really covers the range. For example, there was a time in my practice where... uh, I spent a year just doing metta practice. And that, that was my intention for each set. And that's what I did. At other times, I had an intention that I really wanted to work on the concentration and one-pointedness. And so the intention for that sit would be to, just what we talked about, okay, up the intentionality dial just for the breath, just do that. Sometimes the intention has been to sit in an open awareness, you know, a more choiceless awareness. So the sitting would then follow that. But perhaps most often, so those are specific examples, but most often what I find is that I sit and really trust the intuition of the move between a directed awareness, for example, on the breath, some other single object, and a more open, choiceless awareness. So even within one sitting, I may start with really attending to the breath, and then at a certain point, and it's very intuitive, it's, it's not, there's not a formula for it, but after some time it feels, just feels, oh, this is the moment to open up, and then it becomes more choiceless. And then at a certain point, that intuition may, oh, it might be good to refocus just on the breath. So there's a very easeful interweaving of the two. So the sitting is often like that. So it's, it's all of that. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Um, so we practice metta over the past few days, and just today we started talking about um, that difficult person in our lives. <laughs> and we uh, were taught to start easy, and then work our way up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is great. Um, but there was also a mention about compassion or compassionate practice, and I was curious about it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you can talk Good. more about it. Yeah. Thank you. So obviously the, the metta practice and compassion practice are related, but they have a slightly different flavor and a slightly different uh, phraseology. And also a different um, field of beings. So when we're doing metta, of course we, we start out with you know, the individual categories and then finally we'll move up to all beings. And, and metta really is for all beings, that, that well-wishing. Compassion is addressed primarily to the suffering of beings. Metta is just the feeling of goodwill for everybody, whether they may be in a happy state, you know, and we're just wishing well to all. The phrase for compassion that we use is a single phrase, rather than like three or four phrases. And the phrase is simply, may you be free of suffering. May you be free of suffering. And we start, the first category that we start with in compassion practice is we visualize somebody either known to us personally or maybe just from the news or somebody who's in a lot of suffering. So that's what we're visualizing because that person in this framework, it's easy to feel compassion for because we can you know, intuit or feel or see the actual suffering that's there. And so the wish, may you be free of suffering, really, it has a deep meaning you know, in that wish. And generally, compassion practice is addressed to those suffering beings. You know, and so may you be free of suffering. Um, in one way, it also becomes universal because on one level, we're all suffering. <laughs> you know, so in that sense, it could be extended to anybody. But it particularly highlights beings who are in a situation of particular suffering. Um, what's really interesting about doing that practice, I mean, one might think that visualizing beings really in a lot of pain or difficulty or, you know, perhaps terrible circumstances and expressing this wish, may you be free of suffering, it might sound like, even though it's a good thing to do, it's a downer, <laughs> you know, because we're just, we're filling our heart and mind with the suffering of other beings. But it's quite extraordinary. Uh, when we actually do the practice, even though it's all about suffering and the wish to be free of it. The practice is hugely uplifting. There's a certain kind of... Um, joy is not the right word, but, but it's, it's not a downer, it's an upper. <laughs> you know, because compassion is such a beautiful quality. You know, and when we tune into it, it's just, it's, a, it's an ennobling quality, you know, and to cultivate that, you know, for over an hour at a time, or sometimes people do intensive, you know, metta or compassion retreats, and that's all they're doing all day long. It really opens the heart a lot. 
So it's a little different than metta, although you can see that it's related, but it's, it's quite specifically oriented towards the suffering, either our own or others. And, and that wish, may you be free of it. Wait, mic. Who has the mic? Where'd Walt go? Oh, here is he. We're doing back and front, okay. I thought we were doing left and right. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about um, the difference between wanting things in your life and pursuing them and craving? Okay, so the one of the problems is that in English, the word wanting or cra- uh, wanting in particular or desire can have a wide range of meanings. It covers a lot of different mind states. It's not a single mind state. And so we might say, I want to get enlightened, or I want to be more compassionate, or I want that second scoop of ice cream, or... Those are very different mind states, right? And one is a little more tinged with greed, and the other may be with really a, a beautiful aspiration. So the mind state is very different, even though the word we use is the same. So I think you need to look in each of those situations where you're using the word I want to say, okay, well, what is the quality in the mind? that that word is expressing. And just to see, uh, I'll back up a minute. Living as lay people in the world, we live in the world of sense pleasures and and that's totally fine. You know, we're not, we haven't chosen to live monastic lives with that level of renunciation. So we shouldn't hold that model up necessarily for how we should be living as lay people. We could, you know, but it's not necessary. So when we look at the wants we have as lay people in the world, some will be of the non-greed variety, like coming here, or as I say, you know, a noble aspiration you have desire. But others will have some degree of greed in it. Um, So I think what we want to do in this situation is really monitor the degree of greed. (laughs) You know, are we really obsessing about this thing? There's a there's a little sequence of phrases that might help illuminate this. And (laughs) this came in a very specific example for one of my wants. (laughs) I want. I need, I must have. <laughs> That's going to the greed side, you know, where it just becomes so intense. The basic want for basically an innocuous pleasure, I don't see as being a big problem. Uh, although, even in that, as lay people, it is interesting, at least to practice more for the fun of it or the game of it. Moments of renunciation, just to, just to see what it's like. You know, we we have a desire for a cup of tea or something. No, 
It's not that there's anything wrong with having the cup of tea, so it's not about that. It's just about exercising that renunciation muscle. You know, the ability, when we see a wanting that doesn't particularly serve us, that we're not compelled (laughs) to act on it. That we actually have some inner space to see, do I really want this or not? Do I need it? It just just opens up a lot more space. Um, So so it's monitoring, even in those situations when it is the greed factor, which is going to be there in our lives till we are at the third stage of enlightenment. That's when desire is uprooted. So all the time before that, it's going to be there. And it's not a question of having some ideal that it shouldn't arise. It is going to arise. But can we sort of keep it in balance? That's how I see it. Of course... uh, are you familiar with the Buddhist personality types? There, there are three personality types. There's, it's a personality map within the Buddhist teachings. There's the greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And we all, we all have the mix, but for many of us, one or another is predominant. So I'm firmly in the greed type <laughs> family. No, I like that. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that would be good. Whereas the aversive type, oh, that's no good. That's no good. That's no good. You know, it's more prone to anger. You know, and the greed type is more prone to desire. And the deluded type doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> and it, I like it not, not as a way of kind of you can't want to hold it lightly. But I find there's a certain usefulness in it, both in, in seeing oneself and others, because it depersonalizes it. You know, and so, oh yeah, that's just this personality tendency showing itself. So it's really, we, we have a guiding teacher council here for IMS. I think there are about 10 teachers. And this it's the mix of those three types. It's a riot. The meetings are a riot. <laughs> it, it's like we're each a cartoon figure of these types. <laughs> you know. And so I'll come into a discussion. Oh, this is going to be fine. It's going to work out. No problem. And then the aversive type. What do you mean no problem? This, 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 and this is going to go wrong. <laughs> you know, and the dilute what? <laughs> So seen in that light, it's just it's all held much lighter, you know. And, and, uh, okay, there. And then we could go back to a few men. We don't. We don't have to. <laughs> I didn't mean. I, I didn't mean to scare you off. <laughs> just trying to balance things a bit. <laughs> I'm just curious how important it is to meditate with other people with your practice. If you, if you can practice alone all the time and just have that be your practice, or if joining a sangha or practicing in a group is important. 
I would say, first, it, I think it depends a little bit on where one is on the path. And probably for people beginning, probably group support. For most people, it would probably be quite helpful. You know, because as you know, it's challenging. And if one is just beginning and is not quite sure, you know, or stabilized in the path, or the group support can be hugely helpful. But after that, if one is established in the practice, to some extent, then I think whichever way motivates you to practice. <laughs> you know, so if you're motivated more by kind of sitting alone in that quiet, that's great. If it motivates you more to be sitting in a group, and that motivates you to do it, then that's better. Uh, Thank you. So the, the important thing is what gets us to sit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, all the way in the back. This in the back corner there. <laughs> Who was it? Oh, sorry. Thanks. Why am I talking? Um, I'm trying to understand um, the notion of dispassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and why it's not at odds with, say, compassion or metta. And also, um, so it, it makes sense to get rid of one's suffering, if possible, to whatever extent. But at the cost of the things that are uh, enjoyable. Um, these two sort of cognitive yeah, dissonances. Yeah. Uh, I think it's because, again, it, so much of these questions have to do with linguistic confusions. So the word passion and dispassion in English, there are lots of different connotations of those words. Uh, it would be easy to interpret dispassion or to feel into it as being disinterest, you know, just not enga- not engaged. But that that's not what's meant by dispassion, in the sense in this Buddhist sense. So the, an example I've been given in some of the groups. There's there's one sutta where the Buddha uses the image of. He talks about sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind, heart experience as the terrible bait of the world. I love that. (laughs) Because, so again, just to remind you that that, uh, Mara means, it's the embodiment of delusion or ignorance. So, So often in Buddhist texts, you know, the term Mara appears. So sometimes I think of Mara as the fisherman, you know, with his fishing pole and a hook and with a fish. And all these experiences of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch come along, and we, the fish, bite. <laughs> we, get, we get hooked. So dispassion would mean not getting hooked. It doesn't... Uh, now we have to 
we have to leave the uh, metaphor of the fish. <laughs> but not getting hooked doesn't mean not being responsive. It means not being hooked in identifying with what's going on. So instead of I'm thinking, I'm, I'm wanting, I'm whatever, adding the I or the self to the experience, which is our usual way of being in the world, dispassion means not being identified with all of these passing phenomena, but still being engaged and responsive in an appropriate way to what's arising. And so in the face of suffering, compassion is, it's almost, if people have somewhat of an open heart, compassion will be the natural response to suffering. One time I was doing a retreat um, and there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, teaching about bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is this particularly in like the Tibetan tradition, some other traditions, but it's, it's embedded in, in this one as well. Bodhicitta is that aspiration to get enlightened or awakened for the benefit of all. So, so that actually becomes our motivation to practice. And for me, this has been a very interesting development in my own practice. So for the first many years, I would be practicing with an aspiration to awaken. That, that was a strong aspiration. And understanding that the freer I was, it would inevitably be of help to others. You know, if we're less judgmental and less angry and less greedy, of course it's going to be a positive influence on everyone we meet. But when I started hearing the teachings of Bodhicitta, instead of seeing the benefit of others as being the inevitable byproduct of awakening, I put it at the beginning as the motivation to awaken. Do you see the difference? We will, it will inevitably help beings, you know, the clearer we get. But to actually make the benefit of beings, the motive for practice, I felt that a huge energizing influence. You know, because in a way it took the practice out of a more narrow personal endeavor, and it just put it in this vast context of all beings, and we're practicing with that motivation or aspiration that I'm doing this for the benefit of all. And it was an infusion of energy into my practice. So that's the kind of responsiveness I'm talking about. And it's, so the dispassion is not about disengaging. It's just about not getting hooked in this self-identity, you know, the identification with experience, which is a limitation, which is a contraction, the creation of the sense of self. Uh, so I think it's just important to to see how that word dispassion is used in this context. Does that? Yeah, thank you. In the back, uh, Walt.
sometimes when uh, wonder and gratitude arise for the practice, um, it's followed by a longing to share it with others. And aside from noticing that and not clinging to it, I was wondering if you had uh, any thoughts on how to work with that skillfully over time? I have plenty of thoughts about everything. (laughs) You name it, I have a thought about it. (laughs) Would you like to share them? (laughs) I would. I'll share a few. First, I'll suggest how not to share when you leave here and go home. Hey, Mom, you know, there's really no self. (laughs) Wouldn't do that. (laughs) Fundamental, the fundamental sharing, and we can build on it, but the fundamental sharing is how we are rather than what we say. You know, and so... If you go back with family and friends and work, and you're more, you're more calm. You're less judgmental. You're less reactive. That's the most meaningful sharing, you know, because people will feel it and see it. And so that's the main thing, and that's why just doing the practice, as I say, it inevitably helps people around us because it transforms the way we are. Okay, so... That should be the priority in terms of actual you know, verbal sharing. I think it's really important uh, to learn how to listen carefully because we have to listen to where people are at and then, and over time, and this is, this is its own practice, so then we can share what's appropriate to them at that time. You know, but if we have some preconception of what we want to share, and we're speaking with somebody, and they're not in that space at all, it's not going to be very meaningful. So listening, you know, a, a, a careful listening to the other person and fe- feeling into them uh, is really important. Um, I think those are the two main things, you know. And th- and then sharing from your experience, you know. And you you might feel into where a person's at, and you know, I had a similar experience, and I worked with it in this way, or this is what I understood. So that that becomes a meaningful communication. So just before you go, somebody please remind me, because I've been thinking of doing this for the last 15 minutes and have completely forgotten each time. There are a couple of questions that I want to read. (laughs) So my question is about the term heart-mind. Because I think it's the word mind that's confusing for me. And I, I feel like the body has a mind, the heart has a mind, then there's the brain, and I, can you explain some, what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So first, it's kind of interesting that in many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. 
So it's, it's like in English, we've made that distinction. So that's interesting in and of itself. And so when we, so the phrase heart-mind is to trying to collapse them into one rather than being separate. And it just really means every aspect of our awareness from thoughts and intellectual activity and concepts to feelings and emotions to awareness itself. So heart-mind is just inclusive of it all rather than bifurcating, is that the word? You know, mind up here, heart here. And in the practice, maybe you've had, had the sense, it's not like that at all. It's, it's like there's just kind of an open space and different things are arising within and some are thoughts and some are feelings and some are emotions. And so it's all, it's all of that. Okay, the, these, were, these were just a couple of questions that people had left. At, um, and in a way, they're related. So how do you forgive someone who has hurt you many times? And then the other one was... Uh, you mentioned asking the question, what is a thought? But you said this was not a metaphysical question. But isn't it? Also, it's one thing to not be consumed by your thought, but how do you avoid being consumed by negative thoughts and expressions that one says of you? you know, so how do you relate to that? So I thought that's a really interesting, very practical question because we face these situations. Um, you know, when somebody has done us a lot of harm, how do we forgive them? And how do we relate if people are kind of expressing a lot of negativity toward us? You know, how do we relate to that? And as when I read the question, I just reflected on situations I've been in like that. You know, where uh, some, you know, in certain situations, some people did things which I just felt were really harmful, both to me and to others. Um, and, and saying a lot of not such nice things. So at one point I was on retreat, just in the midst. This, this was a whole big story right, that was going on for, for quite a while. Um, and then I was going into retreat, and it was very up in my mind. And so I would be going over and over again you know, the situation and the story, and I became a very good lawyer for arguing my case. You know, as I was as I was going through the situation and seeing what they had done, dun, 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 you know, here's these five points where you're so wrong and whatever. And right around that time, I was reading this quite amazing book, which maybe some of you have read. It's called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle. And he's a Jesuit priest working in L.A. with the gang kids. And right in the middle, he's, he's living right in the middle of it. And this huge amount of violence, people, a lot of killing and stray killings and intentional, I mean, violent, violent situation. And he's there and working with these kids and trying to you know, find some way to bring them out of that uh, milieu. 
And one of the lines in the book really stuck with me. Uh, or the theme, we could say the theme of the book is love no matter what. Love no matter what. And this is not love meaning condoning those actions. That's not, he was right in the middle of it and seeing the violence of it. But even underneath all that, his vehicle for connecting with the kids was love no matter what. So I read the, the book was really, it was a kind of transmission of that theme. And it was really powerful. It had a powerful impact on me. So in the middle of this, you know, the dukkha of this situation that I was in, and I was going on and on justifying my own point of view, which of course was the right one, but <laughs> just so you're clear. <laughs> but then you know, I tried to bring that in, and it, it was really revelatory because there were some moments when I could really let go of being the lawyer for my side and say, underneath all of that, love no matter what. And there was an interesting piece of this for me. He's a Jesuit, right? So he was using a lot of God language, which is not my language. You know, it's not, it's not the language I resonate to particularly. But there was something in the way he was talking about it. It actually served me at that particular time because as he was talking about it, I could just imagine you know, using the concept of God as he was using it. I, I just got a, a very strong feeling of what it might be like or the love of God looking down on all of us, all of us beings struggling in all the ways we're struggling and caught up in all our, everything we're caught up in, you know, in the fights and the struggles and the loves and everything. And then just, I could just imagine, again, using that language, which is not really my language, but God just loving everyone, independent of the particular activity. And it just gave me a window into that possibility. Yeah. Love no matter what. And what was so striking in this was when I contrasted what it felt like when I was caught in being right to what it felt like when I was in the space of love no matter what. The first was a prison. It was like it was a contracted space. And love no matter what was just open and spacious and it, it just illustrated to me that even when people are being hugely difficult and even harmful, uh, it's not, all of this is not to say that we don't respond in a way that seems most appropriate to the situation. We do respond, but the response is very different energetically and in many ways if we're coming from that space of love no matter what, rather than I'm right and you're wrong. You know, it's a whole different experience. And so I think there is a way, and it's not to say even from that space that the situation will be resolved, because sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes, for whatever reason, 
there's a stuckness involved in the situation that is not getting resolved and could even be ongoing. But still, even with all of that, I've seen the possibility of just resting and, okay, all of that stuff is happening and I'll do what I need to do in response to it. But underneath all of that, not harbor any ill feeling. You know, it's like, okay, all of that's going on. It's not good, whatever, but love no matter what. And for me, that was a really powerful learning uh, of that possibility. Did that seem clear to you? <laughs> it, was, it was really quite impactful. Talk. So, uh, love, no oh. matter what, is a is a beautiful aspiration. Um, how do you when you when, how do you take that wider lens? Like, what skillful means right. takes you out of that contracted space? I mean, I, right. you, you have a lot of practice at it. Yeah. For the, well, uh, for the. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The less practice of us here. Uh, first, I, I want to just add a PS, which I forgot. <laughs> to that a little. Um, that in certain situations that continue to be harmful in one way or another, sometimes the appropriate move is just to remove oneself from it. So I don't mean to suggest that love, no matter what, means that we necessarily have to be stay entangled in the conflict. Sometimes removing oneself is exactly the right thing to do. But can we remove ourselves maintaining the love no matter what rather than out of anger? You know, so that, that's the key piece. I'm not sure there's any one answer to that. I mean, clearly practicing the metta or compassion, you know, as a practice in that specific situation might open the doorway to at least a glimpse of, okay, it's kind of realizing that we're all, we're just all these suffering beings (laughs) trying to do our best. You know, and sometimes it's working, and sometimes we're just spiraling down. And when we see that bigger picture of just suffering beings, you know, and why do people do harmful things? Do you think happy people go around and do really harmful things? I don't think so. You know, usually people are acting out in an unskillful way because of their own suffering. And they don't know how to deal with it. You know, and so it gets, it just spills out into these unskillful, unwholesome patterns. So when we can see that, when we see the suffering underneath the action, I think that that actually is the key. And it's interesting, you know, in these situations, and even like on one-on-one, 
if somebody is being really difficult in one way or another, and we really... Either staying on the level of difficulty or it could be to the level of harm or whatever. It'd be very interesting, and I've done this, to actually look at them. Not look at our idea of them, but actually just to open our eyes and look. And when I've done that, the suffering is so obvious. You know, but most of the time, or, or often, we are reactive to the personality expression. Because that's the most, that's the most apparent. And so somebody's acting out, you know, it's like kind of weird behavior, unskillful behavior. We just react to that. And we don't look. We, we're not actually looking at the person. We're reacting to the behavior. And when I've looked... As I say, the suffering is so apparent. And in seeing the suffering, it's much easier to drop to this level. You know, where, where we really feel compassion. And again, it doesn't mean not engaging. You know, we, we take whatever response is appropriate and helpful as best as can. But our hearts are really open to that person. Um, yeah, it's a whole other way of relating to difficulties. I just sit for a few minutes in the space of love no matter what and you might just extend you know this underneath underneath everything underneath all of our interactions and people we love people we don't love people we dislike but underneath it all can we hold ourselves and everybody else in that space? Uh, it's really beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful way of being in the world. beings be at ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.